Go ahead and start working your way there. Probably the easiest way. Find Hebrews, because it's bigger. And then just, it's right before Hebrews. So find your way to Philemon, where we will be. And anybody had a less than perfect day? Like, uh, in the sense, like, maybe, did anybody not love their neighbor as themselves perfectly at some point today? A couple of hands, all right. Did anybody not love you the way you would prefer to be loved today? Anybody not be perfect towards you at some point? All right. What about sin? Anybody sin towards God in any way? Okay, yeah, there we go. Now we got everybody. At least you are honest. I like that. So, good news. Uh, forgiveness is a good topic then. It's relevant. It's relevant for all of us. And last week, we began looking at the shortest letter written by Paul, his letter to Philemon. And Matt explained, and we'll see it tonight very clearly, it is a letter that is all about forgiveness. Now, as we think about the topic of forgiveness, how central is forgiveness to the Christian life? Like, how central, how important is forgiveness when it comes to the Christian life? Avery says it's pretty important. She's smart on her birthday. Yeah. Forgiveness is absolutely central to the Christian life in every way, right? I mean, just think about the foundation of a Christian life. Like, how do you become a Christian? It is 100% about God forgiving us. Romans uh, 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned, all of us, each and every single human other than Jesus Christ, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that apart from Christ, we are born dead in our sins and trespasses. But the gospel, the good news, is what 1 John 1.9 tells us, that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us. God offers forgiveness to us as sinners, offenders of God, through His Son, Jesus Christ. So when it comes to the centrality of forgiveness to the Christian life, it's the foundation, it's the entry point to fellowship with God. And how dependent are we on God continuing to forgive us? Like, is this forgiveness just something that God needs to extend to you one time and then you're good from there? Or do we continue, even though we don't want to, even as we grow and mature in the Christian life, do we continue to fall short and fall into sin? Absolutely. If you've been a Christian for any time at all, you know that even though you've been forgiven, you still continue to sin and need to go to God daily in repentance and daily have God's forgiveness. Jesus really demonstrates this in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you've noticed this, when it comes to the prayer that Jesus models for us in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's all about daily stuff. It's, it's a daily prayer. Jesus starts with our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He starts by praising God. How often should we praise God? Always, every single day. He then goes on, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How often should we desire for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Always, daily. Then he says, give us our daily bread. How often do we want to eat? Daily. You know, real very emphatic with the thumbs up there. Yeah, we want to eat every day. That's why Jesus says, 
Father, give us our daily bread. Then he gets the forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. That daily thing continues there. We are daily going to be indebted to God and daily need to go and seek His gracious forgiveness. It's central to the Christian life. But something else that the Bible tells us is not only is forgiveness central when it comes to our relationship with God, even our ability to have a relationship to God, but it is also central to our ability to have relationships with one another in the body of Christ, in our families, among friends. Um, in fact, just listen to the prayer that Jesus models for us in Matthew 6. We, we ask the Father, forgive us our debts as what? We know the rest, right? As we for, have forgiven our debtors. We ask God to forgive us our sins against Him as we also commit to forgiving those who have sinned against us. When we recognize how much God has loved us and forgiven us, how much grace He has extended to us, what should that do to our heart when it comes to our relationships with one another? That should make us quick to forgive, quick to show mercy, because as we reflect on our own lives, we realize how hard it is not to sin. How hard it is not to do things that are wrong to other people. Would you all agree with me that it's hard not to fail in loving people as we should? Yes, it's hard even to people you love the most in your life. If we're honest, it's hard to always treat them in the loving way that we should. And we see how easily we fall and sin towards God and we want His forgiveness every single day. And we see how often we sin against others, so we should expect people will sin against us. And with the heart change that we've had because of what God has done for us and what Jesus Christ has done for us, that should make us quick and prone to want to forgive those who have sinned against us. The love of God changes our attitude, our relationships towards one another. 1 John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God so loved us, we should love one another. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. If you want to be like Jesus Christ and imitate God, when you're forgiving one another, that is one of the most God-like things you could ever do. I mean, just think about what the gospel is. We have a perfectly holy and perfectly righteous God that said, you know, I want these beings to share in my love and experience my love and my glory and my fellowship, I'm going to create these beings just to share my love with them. Sounds like a pretty sweet deal, right? I mean, that's the God of the universe. And what do we do as people? We say, nah, that's okay. I'd rather sin. I'd rather live for myself. We willfully choose to reject God, and yet this perfectly holy and righteous God 
extends mercy to us by sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins. What a remarkable relationship that is. And if that kind of God could love us sinners in that way, in such a way, what Ephesians 4.32 is saying, and what 1 John 4.11 is saying is, how much more as fellow sinners should we be quick and willing to forgive one another? It's the one, one of the most God-honoring and God-imitating things that we could ever, ever do. On the flip side, if you have a heart that is just doesn't love one another, doesn't love your fellow brother or sister in Christ, doesn't want to extend forgiveness, a heart that refuses to forgive is a heart that is really indicative of somebody who does not know Jesus Christ. Um, it's an unchristian heart. In fact, Matthew 6, Jesus goes on in verse 14, For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. What Jesus taught about forgiveness was really radical. It got the attention of his disciples. In fact, remember Matthew 18, 21, Jesus is talking so heavily about forgiveness and how much we should be willing to love and extend that towards one another that it's oftentimes the disciples come to Jesus on all sorts of things. He's talking, he's like, I mean, you think about what he said about marriage and like just fighting against temptation. And so often they come to Jesus and they're like, Lord, are you sure you mean what you're saying? Because you sound pretty radical. This is one of those times when Jesus is talking about forgiveness. Peter in Matthew 18, 21, comes and says to Jesus, Lord, how often should I should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And, you know, Peter's going to go for extra credit here because Peter likes to be a standout, like, A-plus kind of guy. He's like, up to seven times? I mean, that sounds pretty good, right? Like, that's a lot. Like, think about if somebody did that seven times and you forgave him. Peter's like, that's got to be a good answer, right? What's Jesus say? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, do you think Jesus was saying, Peter, 490 is the answer, actually. And so, like, you got to, no, what Jesus is saying is, like, quit counting. Quit counting. You forgive. That is the heart of a follower of Christ. It is central. It is a major and defining element of the Christian life, not just in our relationship to God, Absolutely central there, but in our relationships with one another, both extending forgiveness when people have wronged us, and then also what we're going to see in Philemon, seeking forgiveness when we have wronged others. That is what Paul's letter to Philemon is all about. Some people call it a manual on forgiveness or a handbook on forgiveness. Matt, last week, he introduced us to uh, a number of people, but three primary individuals from this letter that I'll point out to us. The first one, the Apostle Paul, the one we're very familiar with, wrote 13 letters of the New Testament, and he's writing this letter while he was in prison in Rome. He was in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel, and that'll come up again here in a little bit. But that's the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to a man who's uh, name goes in the title here, Philemon. Philemon was a prominent member of the Colossian church. And in fact, in verse 2, it tells us that 
the church actually met at his house. So the fact that the church met at his house tells you he was a very prominent member of the church, but also a very faithful man, which is again important to the context of the letter here. Look how Paul um, commends Philemon in verse 4. Paul says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So we have Paul and we have Philemon. Paul's the author of the letter, Philemon's the recipient, and the third key person is who Paul is writing to Philemon about, Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave in Philemon's household, and he had defrauded Philemon by running away. And verse 18 also leads us and most people to think that he probably stole from Philemon at the same time. So not only was he a runaway, but he also um, stole from Philemon. So there is, in this relationship between Philemon and Onesimus, there is this, this sin, this tension, this human relationship that is in strife because of what Onesimus has done. And when Onesimus ran away from Philemon, he was not a believer in Christ. But something has changed. Something has changed. Philemon has become a follower of Christ. And Paul is, I'm sorry, Onesimus has. And Paul is writing to Philemon to bring about this restoration, bring about this love in this relationship between Philemon and Onesimus, who are now brothers in Christ. The, the, the gospel radically changes who we are. It, we are new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, new creations in Jesus Christ. And though that new creation is not just something that happens to you individually. It's something that happens to you as you're now baptized into the body of Christ, integrated into the body of Christ. And you now have not just a changed individual, but somebody with a changed relationship with all other believers in Christ. And that, that, there's no such thing as a Christian who lives on an island. Christians are a part of the body of Christ. When people tell you, like, hey, I don't need church to be a Christian— you know, most of the New Testament is like incoherent outside of the context of the church. The church is central. The relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ is central. In Philemon, Onesimus, there's this tension that Paul knows is not okay. That is why he is writing this letter. And, and uh, the theme here, God's forgiving of us compels us to forgive one another. That's what we'll see in this passage that we'll read tonight. We'll divide it up into three different sections, but I'll start for us just reading verses 8 to 18. Picking up in verse 18. Remember, the, the 1 to 7 is all introductory material. All introductory material. Um, now we get to the heart. Here is why Paul is writing. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake... I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, 
and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. For without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but out of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever." no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Our first section here, an appeal to love. An appeal to love. That's where this love that Philemon has, this is where Paul is um, staging his appeal from. In verses 8 and 9, we see that. I'll read it again. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the age, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Think back in Matthew chapter 22. Remember, Matthew 22 is like all these different groups, the scribes and the Pharisees, trying to trip Jesus up. And so they go and ask him all these questions. And each time, not only does Jesus answer their question, but he turns it into a great teaching moment to teach truths about the kingdom of God. But at the end of Matthew 22, a lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, what are the two most important... Or, no, 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 I'm sorry. He says... Jesus, what is the most important commandment? And what does Jesus say is the most important commandment? With all your heart, soul, and body, right? Um, Or, let me see. Heart, soul, and mind. Sorry, there you go. Yes. Love the Lord your God. He quotes for him Deuteronomy 6.4. Love the Lord your God with all your heart soul and mind. But then Jesus says, hey, I'm going to give you a freebie. You didn't even ask for number two, but I'll give you number two also. Number one is love God. Number two is love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. Essentially what Jesus is saying is like, hey, you don't have to walk around trying to be a legalist and a rule follower. Focus your heart and your mind and your soul on loving God and loving people and you will naturally do the right thing. That is what Paul appeals to here. Those two commandments. Philemon's love of God and Philemon's love of the brethren in Christ. Paul's not going to come in as a heavy-handed apostle. He could. He's an apostle, sure. He could just command Philemon, hey, do this. But no. Paul is going to appeal to the love that he knows. Think about what we learned last week about Philemon and his faithfulness as a godly man and his godly character. Paul knows this, and he knows that because of his godliness, Philemon has a love for people, and he has a love for brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that is what Paul is going to appeal to 
trusting that this forgiveness towards Philemon, this reconciliation, could naturally flow out of that because it's the Holy Spirit in Philemon's life producing that. He doesn't want to take the approach of a heavy-handed apostle. It's really a great example here of leading with love from Paul. We see so much wisdom as we go through this and we look at Paul's approach to leadership of this gentle, loving leadership. And even think about um, like the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus for the long term. What do you think was going to be better for their reconciliation and the long-term health of their relationship? Them coming to a place of reconciliation because of their love for Christ and their love for one another, or just something that was forced by Paul based on his authority? Obviously, forgiveness and love brought about by the Holy Spirit. And even just think about your own life and the kind of leadership that you appreciate in life. Do you appreciate it when people come in and lead you in a loving and shepherding way or in a domineering way? Obviously, loving, shepherding is the, the better approach. And it's the approach that the Apostle Paul takes here. Reconciliation based on this love that he knows Philemon has for Jesus Christ and the body of Christ. Also reminds Philemon of the love that he knows Philemon has for him in verse 8, right? He says, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul to aid. Um, as Philemon is reading this letter, and Onesimus is probably right there in the room with him. So it's probably kind of one of those awkward types of moments for both of them where there's this reconciliation now and there's this tension and there, there's this sin that's been going on between them. But as Philemon is reading this letter, Paul is remembering, reminding him of his love for Paul. And using that to build up the credibility of his letter. And also, he slips in here for the purpose of just remembering Philemon's love for Jesus Christ. Again, those principles, love God, love your neighbor. He reminds him in verse 9 that he is, Paul is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. As Philemon hears this appeal, reads this appeal from Paul, he wants this love for Christ, this love for God, this love for the brethren to be at the very front of his mind. Because Paul knows that true reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ can only happen on the foundation of a love for God. Think about when somebody really wronged you or does something sinful against you. You might, from strictly human standpoint, have no desire to forgive this person. That's a very natural human reaction. But because of your love for Christ, that foundation, the Holy Spirit working inside of you, produces 
that desire to seek reconciliation and to extend loving, gracious forgiveness when human causes never would compel you to do that. But because of your love for Christ, you're willing to. Because of your love for Christ, you're willing to consider yourself second, put yourself to the side, and extend forgiveness. That is exactly what Paul is appealing to here. And remember, when Onesimus ran away, Paul, or Philemon and Onesimus were not brothers in Christ. But since running away, Onesimus has come to salvation. And that changes the entire dynamic. That changes the entire relationship. As followers of Christ, should we be loving towards all people? Absolutely. Should we do good as far as we can towards all people? Absolutely. Romans 13 is a great chapter on how we should interact in it with an unbelieving world. And it's about love. It's about as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But when it comes to our relationships in Christ, that important desire, that important action of loving others takes a whole nother level. We should love all men and do good for all men, but especially those of the body of Christ. And so that's what Paul is going to get into here in verses 10 to 17, is that there is now, even though Philemon has no idea yet, there is now a radical change in the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus because Onesimus has now become a follower of Jesus Christ. So our second part here, verses 10 to 17, our relationships are new in Christ. We are new creations in Christ, but we also have new relationships in Christ. Every aspect of our lives are radically changed. Verses 10 to 17, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. So verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. This is interesting. How did Onesimus meet Paul? I have no idea. I have no idea. Paul's in prison. No one knows, but somehow Onesimus found his way to Paul. And I didn't put it up tonight, but Matt showed us last week a map showing how far it was from Colossae, where Onesimus had ran away from, to Rome. It was like 1,300 miles. Like 1,300 miles today gets you tired because you sit on an airplane for a few hours, right? Like this would have been a long trip. Um, But in God's providence... Onesimus finds Paul in prison, and Paul shares the gospel with him, and Onesimus is born again in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul means when he says that Onesimus is now his child, and that he has begotten Onesimus. Onesimus came to Christ through Paul's evangelism. And this shows us, it's a lesson to us on two levels, how remarkable Paul is. Like, think about the fact he was in prison. And why was he in prison? Why was he in prison? 
preaching the gospel. So he's in prison for preaching the gospel. What's he do while he's in prison? Preaches the gospel and writes Bible. Like, you know, it's a pretty good ministry. Like, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, just, it shows us how remarkable Paul was. Prison was an hindrance to what God was going to accomplish through him. He was going to be obedient to God wherever he was. He's writing scripture, evangelizing. God is making him extraordinarily fruitful. Onesimus is just one piece of fruit, right? There's undoubtedly many we don't even know about or hear about. And it's a great lesson for us. Like, I don't care where you are in life. God's in control of where you are in life, okay? God was in control of Paul being in prison. And wherever you are, God's in control of that too. What you're responsible for is doing what Paul did. Wherever you are, serve Christ. Wherever you are, share the gospel. Wherever you are, be faithful. That's your job. That's your only job. And Paul is a great example to us that circumstances are never a hindrance to what God wants to accomplish in our lives. God is sovereign over our circumstances. And he only calls us to be faithful no matter where you're at, no matter how good your circumstances are or bad your circumstances are. Any good you produce in your life is from God anyhow. It's never from you. God is always the source. God is always the power. Be faithful. Look at Paul's example here. And just like all of us in Christ, because of Paul's faithfulness in his ministry, Onesimus is a new creation. His relationship, when we talk about new creation, we automatically think, first and foremost, of our relationship to God. And yes, that is first and foremost. But again, it's not just our relationship to God that changes when we come to Christ. It's our relationships with one another. We are then part of the body of Christ. Your spiritual health and your faithfulness in using the whatever spiritual gifts God has given you has a direct impact on you. My spiritual health and my faithfulness in using whatever gifts God has given me has a direct impact on you. We are just completely connected in the body of Christ. When one part suffers, every part suffers a little with it. When one part's healthy, the rest of the body benefits from it in that way as well. Onesimus is now a part of the body of Christ. In verse 11, he, Paul says, Onesimus formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I think that's a pretty interesting thing for Paul to say. Onesimus was a slave of, of Philemon. Onesimus should have been doing work for Philemon. So it's interesting to say when Paul says that he was useless to you. But whatever value on an earthly level Onesimus had for Philemon, whatever way he could serve Philemon, it is nothing compared to this new brotherhood that they have in Christ. That's how radically changed our relationships are. Like when you look around this room and when you think of the relationships you have at Northlake Bible Church, these should be some of the most 
critical and foundational relationships that you have in life. I mean, they shouldn't be your only relationships because you got to be in the world, not of the world, but in the world with salt and light to minister to those around you and to evangelize and share the gospel. But your relationships with one another should be so much more important within the church and have so much more investment from you than any other earthly relationships. Onesimus is now of incredible value to Philemon and to Paul because he is now serving Christ alongside of them. What a radical change in this relationship. And Onesimus has already proven to be faithful. So Colossians 4.9, Onesimus actually gets mentioned in Colossians 4.9, which is where he ran away from. Paul's writing to the people that he ran away from, and then Colossians 4.9 tells them that, hey, Onesimus is a faithful and beloved brother. And I love verse 15 here. Paul said that, again, going back to God's sovereignty over our circumstances and the fact that nothing just happens by accident, God is orchestrating all things in our lives and in the world around us. Um, In verse 15, Paul says, For perhaps it was for this reason that Onesimus was separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Like, hey, I know, Philemon, that you're mad about this, and that you were offended by this, and that you were defrauded, and those all seem like bad things. How many times... In our lives, do things happen? And we're like, yes, this is a bad thing that just happened. In reality, we've got no idea what God is really doing, right? When you think of Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose. And you see, as you zoom out on that verse, what He's talking about there is just our transformation um, into Christ-likeness, our sanctification, like whenever bad things happen in life, and they inevitably do all the time, like zoom out and think of the big picture that, yes, this looks bad to me. But whether it's Philemon or just countless other examples in the Bible or even throughout history, and as you get older and you have more life experience, you look back at even your own life throughout the years and you're like, wow, what in the moment was such a bad thing, Now I see God was using it for an amazingly good purpose that I could have never anticipated. Never anticipated. And we don't always get that benefit. Job, I don't think Job ever really figured out why God let all those things happen to him. But God tells Job a lot about his character and who he is. And once Job hears more about who God is and his character, Job's just like, hey, I don't need to know anything else. Like, you don't owe me an explanation now. I repent in dust and ashes for even questioning you. Um, so sometimes God gets to lets us see the big picture and like the good that comes from our trouble. And sometimes he doesn't, but it's always there. God's ways are always perfect. And while Onesimus sinned against Philemon, God used this for good. Now, was it right 
that Onesimus stole from Philemon? No. Is sin ever, and this is tricky one, is sin ever a good thing? No. Sin isn't. Sin is never a good thing. So what I'm about to say, what you do not take away, is for me, is to hear me say that sin's okay. But, this is the wisdom, the power, and the goodness of God that without ever being the source of sin, and without ever in any way being stained by sin, in His wisdom, power, and goodness, He is even able to make good come out of our sin. There's so many examples of this. Joseph, right? Like, think about all the bad things that happened to Joseph. And at the end of Joseph's life, Genesis 50-20 says, he tells the people, his brothers, who did these horrible things to him, look, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Look at all this good that God brought about. The crucifixion of Christ. Extraordinarily sinful. Yet, that was what God used to bring about our salvation. This is just another example. So, don't ever treat sin lightly for that reason. Like, sin is never a good thing. It brings incredible destruction, and it brings incredible death. The consequences of sin, even after God's forgiveness, remain in, in, um, in the earthly sense. So, don't ever take sin lightly. But what you do want to take away from this is, like, when you sin, or when sinful circumstances come into your life, don't despair. There is incredible hope in a God who is not only able to forgive sin, who is not only willing and does forgive sin when we ask for forgiveness, but even our sinfulness is able by His grace to make good come out of it. And it's through this grace in Christ that Onesimus has been transformed into a fellow servant of the gospel with Paul. He is very useful. In fact, that's what Onesimus means, useful. He is very useful to Paul in ministry. Uh, so useful that Paul wanted Onesimus to stay in Rome with him and continue to serve the gospel. But Paul knew something else. So Paul wanted Onesimus to stay with him and serve Christ together. But something else Paul knew is that strife between Christians is never okay. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. I'll read it to you real quick. Just a forewarning, I've lost all track of time. I keep looking at my watch and I'm like, I have no idea how long it is. So we're just going to go. Sorry, I lost track. Um, so Jesus says, Matthew 5, 23 and 24, but, 23, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. You see, Paul cannot feel okay about keeping Onesimus with him because he knows that there's this strife this conflict between brothers in Christ and reconciliation must happen. That's what he says, verses 12 and 13. 
I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. On Onesimus and Paul want to serve together, but they need this reconciliation, this relationship restored. So that brings us to our final section, the principle of restitution. Verse 14, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. And then hop down to verse 17. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Again, Paul's making that point. I don't want you to just be restored because I'm forcing it to happen. It's like if if uh, two kids are fighting and like the teacher's like, you hug and make up or whatever, shake hands. And like they're like, whatever, and they do it. That's meaningless, right? It's a superficial thing. What Paul is looking for is true restoration, true forgiveness from the heart that honors the Lord. And verse 17 is pretty remarkable, right? Paul's an apostle. Like, Paul's got this long relationship with the church in Colossae, with Philemon. Verse 17 is pretty remarkable. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Like, accept this runaway slave, this relatively new convert, as you would me, an apostle, your brother in Christ that you have this deep, long relationship with. Whatever love and fellowship Philemon feels towards Paul should now be extended toward Onesimus. In, in verse 18, Paul asks so much like Christ. In verse 8, remember Philemon had likely stolen, or Onesimus had likely stolen from Philemon. And in verse 18, Paul says, If he, Onesimus, has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Like such a picture of Christ right there. That's exactly what Christ does for us. We are indebted to the Father. We sin against God constantly. We are by nature children of wrath and rebellious towards God. And Jesus on the cross, now standing before the Father, says, hey, whatever debt he has towards you, that sin towards you, Father, put that on me. Put that on my account. It's Paul living out the picture of the gospel. This is what Christ has done for you. So I got three points of application. Number one, if you have experienced forgiveness, or in other words, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, you should have a heart that is quick to forgive. A heart that is quick to forgive. A heart that seeks um, to extend that forgiveness. If you hold on to bitterness and you just, if somebody does something wrong to you, that's it. You're done with them. You've written them off. That's a very dangerous sign for the condition of your own heart. Because those who recognize the amount, go read Matthew 18 when you get home about the unforgiving slave. 
those who realize the amount that we have been forgiven by God, like it becomes not always easy, but so much more compelling that when uh, your fellow brother or sister in Christ sins against you, you are quick to forgive. Ultimately, because of your love for God, but then that love for God spills over and flows into your love for one another. The second point I would make here is recognize our unity in Christ. Like Philemon and Onesimus come from totally different strata of society, right? I mean, you've got extraordinarily wealthy Philemon here, and you've got the slave Onesimus. And they are on completely the same level in Christ. That's what Paul tells the Galatians, right? In Christ, there's neither slave nor free, uh, male or female, Jew or Greek. Like, in Jesus Christ, we are all one. So, like, if you're incredibly smart or incredibly dumb, you're one in Christ. If you're incredibly athletic, incredibly unathletic, you are one in Christ. Like, look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at each other as somebody that Christ hung on the cross for and gave his life for. Somebody that Christ purchased with his own blood and love each other the way that God loves. Love another person the way that God loves that person. Recognizing that their spiritual health and well-being, it's integrated with your spiritual health and well-being. And vice versa. That this is the body of Christ. Third. So, when so, I guess part one would be when somebody, or application one would be when somebody comes to you for forgiveness, be quick to extend it. His third one, though, seek forgiveness when you wrong somebody else. It could have been easy for Onesimus to hide, right? Like, it could have been easy for Onesimus to be like, hey, I'm on a new life path now. Like, that guy's 1,300 miles away. There's no airplane. There's no Facebook. There's no way he's tracking me down. I'm done. I'm going on in my life. No. Onesimus sought Forgiveness. Seek forgiveness. You are going to do wrong to people. We're human, right? You're going to make mistakes. Be willing to admit those mistakes. And again, primarily because of your love for God, but then also for your love for one another, seek to reconcile those mistakes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the forgiveness that we have in you. And uh, just that you are willing to forgive us our debts. And I just pray that the truth of that and the magnitude of that would cause us to be quick to forgive one another. Pray that you would grow us in our love for you, grow us in in our love for the body of Christ. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.